calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Take 15. Uh, today is my privilege uh, to interview uh, Thomas Sargent, Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, currently at uh, New York University. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us today. Sure, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Tom, I'd be remiss if uh, I didn't start by uh, talking about uh, your Nobel Prize winning work uh, for uh, understanding cause and effect in the macroeconomy. Can you just highlight for our audience a couple of the, the key uh, pieces of that work? The interaction between the past and the present and the future. And economics is one of the, um, it differs from physics in the sense in, in, a, in physics, the present f emerges from the past. The system goes like this. The past events cause the present. In economics, um, ec people's expectations about what's going to happen in the future affect things right now. So um, if people think there's going to be uh, a big tax increase two years from now, that's going to affect how they invest and consume right now. So people's beliefs about what is going to happen in the future happen is going to affect today. So disentangling the timing when people are behaving like that is, um, is one of the big challenges of um, both my, all of economics. And, um, you know, with a little luck and some hard thought, some in the, in the 70s, we figured out how to make a lot of progress in that way. Um, we use something called rational expectations. It's kind of not a very good term, but it's a, it's a way of helping us sort out how the past and people's expectations about the future combined to affect what happens right now. You know, we, we figured out methods for doing this, and they, they turned out to be helpful to, to build uh, abstract and statistical models that central banks and treasuries now use to make decisions. Uh, well, thanks. I think that's uh, fascinating stuff, and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, you know, our audience would learn a lot from uh, following up more on your work. Uh, let's uh, bring ourselves a little bit more current. Uh, you recently, you wrote an article uh, called uh, Europe Now and America Then, and you made a comparison between the Eurozone today and the early beginnings of America and how they handled uh, their crises. Um, maybe you could just highlight some of the key elements of that uh, comparison that you drew in that article. And the story is basically this. Um, see if this reminds you of Europe. Um, the US has actually had two constitutions. We have one today that everyone reveres. But we had one before. And the constitution we had, it was called the Articles of the Confederation. It was our first constitution. It, it was um, the constitution under which we fought the War of Independence and the constitution in which we governed our 13 independent states um, in the 1780s. And one way to describe this constitution is Ronald Reagan's dream. It was a constitution that is designed to uh, make the central government very weak, a government that can't tax, can't spend, can't borrow. 
because it can't tax. So the outlines of the Constitution, see if this reminds you of anything, 13 independent sovereign states, they were, they were fiscally sovereign. They had the ability, a monopoly on the ability to tax. They had the monopoly on the ability to regulate trade. There's a central government that was very weak. Okay. Couldn't, couldn't tax by itself, had to ask for contributions from the individual states. Um, that actually in broad outlines looks like the Eurozone today, where the sovereignty and the fiscal sovereignty resolves and resides in the individual states, Germany, France, Italy, and there's a very weak center um, that would like to be stronger. So in this, in the, the reason the comparison is interesting to me is in the 1780s, um, U.S. had a had a fiscal crisis. We had government debt. We had the 13 states that issued debt to finance the war. The center had financed had issued debt. The, the government, the central government, had no ability to collect taxes. So you need to collect taxes if you're going to service your bonds. So the consequence was, U.S. government bonds from the war and state bonds went at deep discount. Not like the discounts on Greek or Italian debt, huge discounts, 10 or 20 cents on the dollar. So there were lots of, there's lots of dissatisfaction of this among creditors and people who wanted, felt as a matter of honor we should pay our debts in the 1780s. They tried to fix things under the current institutions, never worked. And they, they figured out we're never going to create a government that can pay its debts under that constitution. And so what they did is they had a second revolution. It's a peaceful revolution. But our, our founding fathers in the U.S. met behind closed doors. They did it in secret in Philadelphia in 1787. They misrepresented to the public what they were going to do. They said they were going to, they were going to amend the Articles of Confederation. It's not what they did at all. They, they ripped it up. What they did was technically treason. That's not what you teach in high school. They ripped it up. They wrote a new constitution that completely realigned the fiscal powers. It, it took the one tax that you could raise money from, the tariff in those days, made it illegal for states to issue it, and concentrated in the central government. Uh, the federal government then had the ability to levy that tax. And then the second thing they did was, one time, they bailed out all the state debts. They, they federalized or nationalized all the state debts, became federal debt. And um, Alexander Hamilton actually and George Washington explained why they did this. It's the first thing that the Congress, the new Congress did. They said, what we want to do is we want to transfer the interests of these creditors of the states and make them creditors of the federal government so they'll support a strong federal government that'll levy the taxes sufficient to service their debt. So that's what happened in the U.S. And that's how we created a, f a fiscal union and kind of a monetary union. And uh, it was an institutional reform. It was a, it was a, you know, a rewriting of the Constitution so you could get different outcomes. So that's, that's a struggle we're seeing. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and I appreciate your perspective yeah. on that. Uh, I know that uh, a point in your background, you spent some time at the University of Chicago, and of course they're famous for the rational uh, expectations model. And you even touched on that uh, earlier in our uh, conversation. Um, what is your perspective on the appropriate role for rational expectations in economic decision making? And in particular, if you can sort of juxtapose that a little bit against sort of this, this wave of behavioral economics where it, it sort of highlights that people are anything but rational. So how does that, how do you sort of blend uh, what we're learning in behavioral economics with this rational, rational expectations model? 
Uh, it's a great question. Um, you know, to the man in the street, there's no guide at all. To people who have to deal with the system as a whole, like Bernanke or the U.S. Treasury or the guys who are running the euro, mm -hmm. it's their bread and butter tool because they have to have a theory of the whole system as a whole, and and they get they get they get caught up in the in the following conundrum. So they're going to be able to model this entire system. The model is going to have two characteristics. First, it's going to give predictions about what's going to happen in the future. That's what they want the model for. But inside the model, there's people like you and me that they're trying to model who are also making predictions about the future. So now the question is, what are they going to say? Are they going to say they can make better or worse predictions than the people inside the model? And the rational expectations view is it's a tie. We're going to build a model where the model itself has predictions that are kind of shared by the people in the model. So it's, 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 it's a disciplinary device uh, for model builders. And like, like Bernanke's using this, Mervyn King uses it, the guys who build models of Diamond David used it. When they, anytime you built a model of runs, bank runs or contagion, everybody uses this. And they don't use behavioral finance or behavioral, and for good reason. They're not trying to describe an individual. They're describing a whole system that's put together. And um, it's a shortcut and really powerful method, the rational expectations. And it, it makes you invulnerable to the following decisive question. If you, I, I come with you with a model, say this is a great model, here's a mixed prediction of the future. And it has agents in it. The people inside the model are making stupid forecasts. But I can make better forecasts with my model. You'll ask me, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> if I have a rational expectations model, I'll say, well, because the agents in my model are doing just as well as I am. And Bernanke's models are like that. So let's peel back the onion a little bit. Uh, in your uh, presentation, you talked about the Ellsberg uh, paradox. Um, maybe you can sort of highlight uh, at a high level you know, what that is and how that sort of plays into this notion of rational expectations. The Ellsberg paradox is different from rational expectations. And, and you could think of it, it's, it's an it's, I think it's a great example of behavioral economics challenging something that's standard. So what rational expectations assumes is that when you and I make decisions, we have a unique probability distribution that we think describes outcomes. So we're ignorant about, you know, we, things are random, they move around, but they're described by a probability distribution that we know. And in rational expectations models, you and I share that same probability distribution. We agree about it. Um, point of the Ellsberg experiment is, um, well, what happens if, okay, so, so now the question is when you, when you actually apply rational expectations or you apply models where people have unique probability distribution, where do they get that distribution from? And do you think that describes every situation? So there's a new body of work when, when it's, some of it's motivated by, by, by talking to statisticians who are one of the sources of these probability distributions. And they'll say, I'll give you a distribution, they'll say, don't completely trust it. And they'll say there's a, other distributions that might work equally well. And you start asking them, well, what do you mean there's other distributions? They'll actually tell you there's a set of distributions. People who design air, aircraft control systems and engineers who design bridges, they don't, they don't assume that their model of physics and engineering is right. 
You might think they're engineers, they're really precise. No, they don't trust their physics. They don't trust their model. So what they do is they, they, assume it's, they assume their model is kind of at the center of a set of models that might govern things, and then they ask, what could go wrong? So they make a particular design, and they'll say, well, it works well under my model, but what about one of these other models? And they use that to decide um, places where their decisions are most fragile. That's why they build up the bridge, you know, in some ways, even though they don't think it's likely it's going to happen. So they look for, it's called robustness. Well, it's a very intriguing concept, and I'm sure everyone's anxious to uh, dive into all that. So uh, I'll leave it there. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have you, and it's very exciting uh, having you here. And thank you for joining us as well. Uh, be sure to uh, tune in to uh, all of our Take 15 interviews, as well as uh, our Enterprising Investor blog uh, at cfainstitute.org. Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.